You're listening to Ground Truth, the podcast that brings you insights from the brightest minds in AI, ML, and data science. Join members of the Arthur team as we sit down with the field's leaders and luminaries to talk about topics both trending and timeless. We'll explain groundbreaking research, share unfiltered opinions, and answer questions you didn't even know you had about the theoretical and practical applications of AI and ML technology. Whether you're an executive, a student, a policy wonk, a researcher, or anywhere in between, we hope this podcast will teach you something you didn't know or give you a perspective you hadn't considered. Recorded live from Arthur's New York City headquarters. He spun out Covio Labs, which integrated with NVIDIA, Microsoft, Stanford, and a number of other sort of household names, showing that you can do AI and ML research at a quote-unquote reasonable scale, which is to say the fangs of the world or OpenAI or Microsoft. Yeah, you do a lot of great research, but you can also do a lot of great research when you don't have $10 million. And so living, breathing proof of that. So since then, he is also co-creator of the Reckless Library, which we're going to talk about in some depth today. This is a behavioral testing for recommender systems. Recommender systems, goes without saying, uh, run a lot of our lives. So that's a very interesting space and one that intersects, of course, with responsible AI as well. And you know, I'd be amiss to not include the list of various fancy titles, like involved with MIT, he moonlights at NYU as an adjunct professor, and so on. So without further ado, Jacobo. Thank you very much. So tell us a bit about yourself, your path to tech, NLP, Tuso the startup, and we'll obviously dive deeper into what that was like being acquired, going through an IPO, and research in general. But yeah, who are you? Oh, that's an easy question. So what my biographer will say in a few years from now is that I started to get interested in this in high school when I read a book called Godel Escher and Bach, which is a fantastic book. And it's a book about what AI used to be before all physicists came on board. It was a very, it was a very cool time. And I get interested in how people think and how we can actually model reasoning. And so that's my choice of like studying logic and all of that. And then I became interested in more quantitative aspects of it, got into more cognitive sciences and computer sciences, learned how to code when I was very, very old. I always joke that I knew what computer couldn't do before knowing how to tell computer what to do anything, which, which I think is interesting. And I, that's maybe one of the reasons why I still suck at coding after so many years. I never, I never get back what I, what I didn't get in the first place. I think the answer there is also LLMs, like you've been a... Oh, yeah, exactly, yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> and so, so yeah, that's, that's the interest. And then Tuzo was a, it's a combination of like some business interest of the co-founder, the co-founding team at the time, and the long interest that we have about languages, human languages, formal languages, and so on. Remember, this was before BERT, before LLMs, before kind of like MLOps, before anything, right? You have to actually know what you were doing to do NLP. And so the idea was, can we build a better search system by mimicking what the human mind does when parsing the language, which is an incredible, it's a great moment of complexity for then making people buy blue shoes by Prada. But that's, that's what, young and naive at that time. That's what drives the economy and what creates all these fancy buildings. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so it drives my flat for sure. Yeah. Cool. So I'd like to take this maybe more in the direction of MLOps in general, which I know you've been, been a leader in that space for a while. So you were acquired into Tecovio and led ML, led their MLOps team through their scale-up phase, through IPO, and then I guess left after that. Just would love to hear some comments on A, what it's like integrating an MLOps team into some larger company, and then B, like how does MLOps scale during that scale-up phase? Any, any thoughts on that? Yeah, mostly negative, but yes, we can, we can go to that. So together with my friend Chiro, which is, which is in the audience, we, we helped the company somehow go from the first wave of AI, which was the sparse, spark-based kind of like Scala model. Yes, I said Scala. Scala models to the more modern 
deep learning, kind of like end-to-end -end differential system. And of course, there are challenges along the way. Some of them are technical, as in, if you're an early mover, like Coveo was, like if you start doing this in 2015 when nobody else was doing it, now when everybody's doing it in 2019, you're still using the stack of 2015. And again, that's now there's like a bit of a resistance to change that you have to, that you kind of have to, have to beat. And that's, I think, a huge part of that. And a second part of that was the attention to data. Like Tuzo, our company was clumsy and for long many dimensions, pretty stupid, but we were obsessed with data. Like our data pipeline, now that I've seen a lot of other data pipelines in my life, our data pipeline was actually pretty impressive for the scale it was. And so a lot of our work, which was less fancy than publishing in nature, was helping an entire company understand that we're never going to be great at ML if we're not great at data before. And I guess that's kind of like also what the seed for our new company comes from. Yeah, and we'll come back to that as well. And I mean, this is something that we hear all the time when talking to Picks and Axes sort of companies in the LM space or LM for X companies as well is like the, the, the value of understanding your data, going through dedupe, all that sort of classic ML stuff where you spend all your time looking at data and understanding what's going on is, is still the case, right? So a lot is changing in that space now, but, but we're hearing a lot of the same stories as well. So definitely resonates. Maybe we can take this time though to walk into, you've done a lot of sort of publicity around talking about enabling applied research at a reasonable scale or at a startup scale, right? Not at Microsoft or Google scale, but at a, a strong company, but not one with the deepest pockets in the world. I don't know if you just want to give any learnings from that. Oh yeah, like sure. Like the things are like something we're really proud of, like what we achieved as, as, as part of Coveo Labs. The reasonable scale is like this somewhat catchy phrase to describe everything that happens outside of the planetary scale of big tech, right? You don't have all this money, but also you don't have all this data. And also you also don't have all these problems, which is something that is actually comes into your advantage. As in, the margin for error for you is much larger. Like again, if Facebook makes a bad recommender system, it can destroy democracy, hypothetically. But if Tuzo did that enough, again, worst case, you're gonna buy less shoes. So there's a lot of leeway to actually experiment, which is fantastic. And if you embrace that, I think it can lead to an incredible bump in productivity, both for you as a company and from all the people that somehow tag along the way. Our strategy was A, partner up with people from university, especially younger up-and-coming postdocs, like people that really have an appetite to make a name for themselves. And academics are really, really good at being better than us at cutting-edge stuff and also being good at working for free. So the combination of these two things is actually fantastic, Ciao Federico, is actually fantastic. And, and it allowed us to achieve something that by ourselves we would never be able to do. And the second pillar from our, from our philosophy is openness, right? Because if you work now with Gabriel at NVIDIA, people at Netflix, people at Piero Duber and so on, the last thing you want to do is to talk to lawyers. That's a general fact about life, but the last thing to do is to talk with Uber lawyers, right? And so what we came up with is this idea that everything we do with other companies is open by design. We're gonna publish a paper so nobody's gonna own it. We're gonna publish the code that are an MIT license so everybody can use it. And in many, many cases, we're actually gonna publish the entire data set so that the community can benefit. And this is a way in which you can align the roadmap of companies that are like so different on paper, just by picking people that you want to work with and kind of build great stuff together. And for us, it's been like, you know, exceedingly fun and also a great excuse to work with our friends. That completely resonates in every possible way. And I have two sort of follow-ups to that. One is, at Arthur, we're also following some of this where we, a lot of the, obviously we have a lot of novel IP, but one thing we do is we have a strong presence in academia and in industrial research 
We've talked about KDD workshops, but also NeurIPS, ICML, and so on. And this has really paid dividends both in, well, I will say, when we were doing our Series B raise, I called academic labor cheap labor, and I was told by our VCs it should be capital efficient. So capital efficient connections with academia. And this has really paid dividends when it comes to deploying ML systems in sort of uh, delicate or societally relevant areas as well. So I think to summarize what I heard you say as well is when it comes to doing research as a startup, some of this is aligning with better resourced larger companies to produce artifacts that benefit both companies and also obviously the community, doing spiky research so you're very, very specialized in a particular area that, 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 you, can, that you can push forward in. Yeah, I think, it's, I think it's perfect. And the more, in our experience, the more you run this as a startup, like we, we joked that we were like a startup within a startup, like the more you have this mentality of like everybody comes together for this hackathon-like ideas of like, hey, let's publish this together. Everybody jump on Slack. Everybody talk to each other. There's no real hierarchy or relation. Like the VP and the interns are all together coding. Like the, the, the intern codes more, but you know what I mean? The more you make it fun, the more you can convince somebody that has like an outrageously well-paying job at a big tech to still spend his time working with you. If you start talking about DA, bureaucracy, permission, everybody's just gonna quit before the project even starts because there's no money in it. The only thing that is in it is like knowledge and fun. And so I think one thing that we got tried was the fun aspect at least. Yeah, totally. I, th I think most of us got into ML because of the community and because you can just sort of hack things out. So totally resonates. So, Part of that job, that leading of MLOps Ecovio, obviously was building out a stack. And you've already mentioned that you were dealing with some, some legacy issues, where legacy is on the order of close to a decade or slightly less, but things move very quickly. Do you have any suggestions, let's say that you had to go from zero to one right now, do you have suggestions for somebody going from zero to one, building out their own MLOps stack now? Any learnings? So the general guess is buy and not build at a startup scale, and even at a at a bigger scale when you don't have the type of resources and mentality and time frame that you would need to do everything by yourself. Where buy doesn't really mean always take off the credit card and swipe the credit cards. It may be in a combination of like, hey, there's an open source tool that is really great. Tuzo Coveo were like users of Metaflow, which is an open source framework by Netflix, for example. So they didn't cost us anything technically, but we didn't want to reinvent the entire pipeline to when we could just use what these people were doing. And I think a lot of the success in velocity we achieved was, well, if you know which pieces to pick, today's a fantastic moment to be in ML, as I always say, because you don't have to do much anymore. Like every problem you have has been solved by somebody. And I think your job as a leader is not to redo the job of other companies, is to just make sure that they can play nicely together in a stack that make people productive. Yeah, and I think we're seeing a lot of that as well these days in 2023, the year of foundation models. Totally makes sense. Anything else to add on to that or? You know, I mean, it's it just a process, like start with something that makes sense from 80% of the way, and then start removing the pieces that you don't like to go to 100%. We did a lot of open sourcing in this as well. Like we open source our entire data stack, minus the data, with Snowflake and DBT and, and so on. And we open source the, you don't need a bigger boat repo, Yes, I'm the guy with funny titles. That's literally my thing in the community, which is like a fully open source MLOps backend that gets you from zero to run a transformer model in production on an endpoint, which I know now doesn't impress anybody anymore. But in 2021, was actually was actually relatively impressive. And it's all yeah, and it's all open source. You can try it out. You can download it. And again, if you start from there, it's not going to be the end of your journey, very unlikely. But it can be a good start. Like you don't have to make all the decisions that I already made 
to arrive at a point where you can actually use your stack. So that may be helpful for people out there to try it out. Amazing. I do want to get to one of the things you talked about. Well, two of the things actually. So two things you're currently working on. One is reckless. So behavioral testing. Anything to add to what you were talking about here? So any, any learnings, any feedback from the community actually? So you mentioned this has really had an uptake, not just in, in papers, but also users. Yeah. So I, I know the dynamics question that was asked, which by the way, another shout out here, uh, we should obviously be looking at models that are, that are already put into production in an online fashion. So watching over them uh, is, is quite important. Do you know of any monitoring company? I can't think of any. But any feedback from the community where you think like we should have designed this differently or like that's a neat thing that we should add? Actually, yeah, so we were late, but we are gonna push like a beta version. Like this reckless was like the alpha, which was like getting us the paper that a challenge. We're actually pushing and we're late the beta, which is actually completely changed in the way in which we structure the API. So because we, the feedback that we got was like, guys, this is all nice and well, but I have already a data set that is like in a pandas compatible shape. We're not going to comment on how good that is, but that's just what people say. And so we basically rebuild the entire infrastructure to be data frame in and data frame out, like listening to, to basically to our user, and hopefully it's going to be released soon. And then for the KDD workshop, we're going to have a special reckless edition that is going to basically help participants to be more productive in, in participating into that. So, yeah. so we'll see how that goes. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. We'll put a link up to that, obviously, on the yeah. various channels that we're, we're sharing this with. Yeah, and the second one, just briefly, because I know we're a little tight on time, and I want to make sure we have some time to do some Q&A. Anything to add? I know you're founding a new company, not to put you on the spot. Any quick sentence or two on that? I think I, I mentioned a bit the, the struggle of, of being very good at ML without being very good at data pipelines. And I think over the year, we grew passionate about solving the problem upstream. And also, all my friends have an MLOps company, so they didn't want to compete with them. So, so now I can basically feed all of them and I can use them to go to market. So that was the idea of moving upstream. And so we're building this serverless transformation platform for people to go from raw data in a data lake, especially to artifacts, whatever it is, like for models or for BI, that is completely serverless and it should be, get you like a much better developer experience than using other legacy tools, like some of them I started before, like Spark, for example, which has been great in 2014, but now in 2023, the whole experience feels a bit clunky compared to other type of things we have. And the question is like, why data people can't have nice things themselves, right? You know what I mean? Totally resonates. I also appreciate the strategic operationalizing your friends who own MLF companies as well. Yeah, some of them are here, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So one last like set of questions, and this is very similar to the kind of questions we often end on. I'm going to say natural language because you have a history in this, and obviously it's very hot right now, but it could be IR, it could be Rexus, CS in general. What's hot? What's overhyped right now? And then if you have any predictions, short-term or long-term, would love to hear them. What's overhyped? Let me think about that. What can be? What can it be? Maybe I would say language models. <laughs> I would say that. So I think language, so there are two things here. Like my, con so my contrarian, I mean, I'm sorry, contrarian take, but like I, I was a skeptical. So I'm going to take it a bit from, from, from afar. So I was a skeptical of deep learning for natural language processing for a long time because I come from a completely different tradition, right? If you want to put a label on it, you can, the Gary Marcos kind of Twitter feed, okay? When Bert came on, like I was like, kind of dismissive of that. Like BERT is great as an engineering tool and as an entrepreneur, I really value that. But scientifically, it was really shallow. Like nothing actually I really learned about language using BERT. And then GDP3 came and, and then I start paying attention. Like GDP3 was actually a fantastic moment for the field because nobody, and that's I think is a crucial point, none of the people in favor of neural networks and none of the Gary Marcus predicted that this was scaling this up 
now we would have all this emerging behavior. And if no theory predicts it, either for or against, it means there's a new fact that we need to, to explain. It's like a fantastic moment for the field. And of course, everybody forgot about this because nine months later, we now have ChatGPT, which in my experience, and no offense to anybody, is actually much more boring than what we had before. Because ChatGPT is basically overfitting to a huge data set and supervision. And of course, we know that it works. We know that overfitting works. We know that supervision works. That's not really exciting. It may work. It may be a fantastic engineering tool. I use ChatGPT like every day. But I'm kind of a bit, I don't know, bummed that the community turned immediately away from the, 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 the pure model of like next word prediction to something that is like basically, hey, you have a bunch of humans solving a problem, try to imitate them. Of course, it works. So yeah, that makes sense. Am I, am I completely Absolutely. off? Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think as we see applications of these models really coming into deployment, we're going to see that move where people are focusing as well, right? So it may move away from the chat GPT style of thing toward maybe where it was in the past or maybe toward some sort of new model, right? And that Sam Altman's been sort of public about this recently saying everything that we've done at OpenAI is, is it's going, it's going to change, right? It's already obsolete. And so I don't know if you believe that or not, but it's hard to make these predictions. No, no it's super hard. But like, I think in NLP, there's been a, like really hard for people in the field to decouple engineering advancement and fundamental advancement about language. And then thing has been going on for the last six or seven years. And now it's even harder to do that, right? And, and I feel it's a bit sad because language is still a mystery. You know what I mean? And, and it's great the fact that now we have something that finally works. NLP never really worked, let's be honest. Like Tuzo never really worked in the sense that really, really works. But it doesn't mean that we should dismiss all the question that led us up until this point. As scientists, again, as, then we can use ChatGPT for all sorts of nice things and build companies and, and all sorts of that. I'm not doing NLP anymore, so I can, I can say bad things about all the fields now. <laughs> well, that resonates, and I'm glad we won't get dragged by Gary Marcus on Twitter, which is good, so thank you for that. I mean, don't, you know, <laughs> don't be so sure. Yeah. So I guess anything else to add, or we can just hop over to, to Q&A? No, you? I think, I mean, my prediction for the next thing is probably going to be wrong and boring. So I think it's better to, uh, to answer it. We should say people. it confidently, like an LLM. <laughs> cool. Well, why don't we clap as we do? Thank you. Thank you. And we have time for Q&A. Again, please do use the microphone so folks in the video can, can hear you. We have Q&A until I get sort of rushed off the stage. We have a question in the back. So how do you think about the like causal effects of multiple recommendations one after another? Like people talk about banded style evaluation. Do you think that's the kind of thing that only big tech companies need to care about? Or is the kind of thing that smaller companies should think about in the evaluation of the recommendation systems? You know, the first question is also the hardest one that can be possibly be asked. So, yeah, very good question. So offline testing is sort of not what you should do with machine learning system, especially if machine learning systems are an intervention, so to speak, and not a prediction. What is an intervention? Intervention is something that when you make, you're actually going to change the environment, and so you're going to pollute your own, your own set. Recommender systems are the paramount example of that, right? By recommending you a pair of shoes, I'm going to make you more likely to buy it, so to speak, right? So online testing should always be run on top of offline testing. But offline testing are cheap, are what the community talks about, and it was an easier entry point, even engineering-wise, as in it's much easier to, you know, all offline training loops look the same to some extent if they're done properly. While the entire bandit and A-B testing, everybody's his own, and typically only very, very big and sophisticated company has it. But generally speaking, if you want to build a good recommender system or any good ML system, you should actually engineer it in such a way that you can test it online. 
there's no way around it to get a true measure of generalization. So this is all good and well, but don't trust the final number that comes out of it to be actually representative of your generalization. What's the most exciting opportunity you see in recommender systems in the coming years? Large language model. How? <laughs> no, I'm kidding, I'm kidding, of course not. That's a, that's a very good question. So there's a bunch of stream of like interesting work that has been done, and I think is in its infancy. One thing that I really like is the combination of like recommender system and decision theory. Like we, we did some prototyping. When Amazon gives you like a TV, and then there's a table with features and four more TVs. Is everybody familiar with this? And one thing that we always wanted to see is that, can I convince you to buy the TV you're on just by showing you basically shitty alternatives, right? And there's a lot of, there's a lot of interplay between how humans make decisions and how we train models that are now are basically not really explored in the literature because it's just better to take a, a neural network, not think about anything and just train it. But I think that's, that's a promising thing. And the other thing is going real, real time, right? Everybody says that this is gonna be the year of the streaming pipeline. We've been seeing that for like the last 15 years, so maybe this year is gonna be true. But again, recommender system tends to be intervention, so the, the faster you are to react to what people do, actually there's value into building that. It's just freaking hard to build a purely online recommender system, and only few players in the world can actually achieve that consistently. Otherwise, you're gonna just make more bugs than the one you're actually trying to solve. So you mentioned you had a contentious opinion about using ChatGPT to do model deployment. Can you expand on that? Yeah, I mean, like I, I still haven't seen, aside from ChatGPT and maybe CodePilot, like something that actually works for the real use cases in production with using LMs. That said, I don't follow the entire spectrum of, the, of what people offer these days. But I'm generally bored by all the tiny wrappers around LLMs type of hype. And I know that people in crypto have free time now and it's not really fine. <laughs> we're, a welcoming, we're a welcoming field and all of that. But yeah, but on the other side to me, it's like, it's like nothing I ever really learned in that so far. And I hope to get, it's way more interesting when you're wrong. Like if you're right all the time, life is boring, right? And if you're wrong, it's much better. So yeah, don't tell them, that tell that to my investors. Uh, what do you think about offline policy evaluation? It's cool. <laughs> no, seriously, because you have your library, but it doesn't. Yeah, like, so I think this is connection to, to the question that Don asked before. Mark, I think the, this is one of the paramount problems that we haven't solved in recommended system, but let's be honest, in most ML, is how we go from what we do as an off, like what really the offline testing suite tells us about what's gonna happen online. And there's a lot of fancy methods that people use. This is, way more simple than any of that. Again, Rex is most of a check for whatever assumption you want to put into that. But that's one of the, to me, is one of the biggest, if not the largest, open problem recommender system. The other one is how to make humans and machine work together. Like if anybody here has ever deployed a real recommender system, not like a toward data science tutorial, you know that a recommender system is not like input neural network output, right? There's gonna be a million rules and kind of like things that goes between what the model predicts and what you actually see. Like for example, if Elon Musk says yes, bump it up, right? There's an example, I'm sure it doesn't happen, but it may, be, it may be something that people would want to use in a recommender system. What's the problem? The problem is that the moment you interfere with, again, this end-to-end -end differentiability with rules that the model doesn't know they're there, and you're still making a prediction that is gonna pollute your next, basically, data collection, now it's very hard to make this work in tandem. And I've never seen anybody with a good solution for this 
in the world. So if somebody has a good solution for me and want to tell me, please send me a message. But this to me is the second biggest problem recommender system. The first one is interplay between offline and online. And the second is like, humans really want recommender system to do certain things, but the way in which human reason tend to disrupt the value of a model, how do we make them kind of like work together in a better way? I think that's a fantastic question for other people because now I have a real job. Hi, thank you so much. This has been so interesting. I know we're talking a lot about how language models will change the workforce at large and put people out of their jobs and things like that. How do you think that advances in recommendations will impact larger like career changes and workforce things? So recommender system are like, like with language model, we're speculating about what's gonna happen. Recommender system arguably already have changed society in the last 10 years to a level that no other machine learning model is even remotely close to do. All our newsfeed, many of you actually probably came here because of a recommender system. Obviously a terrible one, but still you're here. So like it's, I mean, how can it change even more than that? I actually don't know, but there's a, there are some countries that actually had now specific regulations of how recommender system should behave, which is something that is kind of like a completely new. And it came from the realization of the potential danger of recommender system at planetary scale. Again, that does need to be a distinction between running the recommender system of Twitter and making people buy shoes. Like, we shouldn't overreact to use cases when there's obviously no harm, which are probably the vast majority of them. But recommender system at large are already impacting society. I'm not sure if people are losing jobs for this, but certainly people are changing opinions or changing their life because of that, right? Many of you probably have found like a job because of LinkedIn. I guess, or again, find like a new paper because of Twitter, right? So there's a lot of, of that that goes into a recommender system, which also makes them fantastic tools for change. If you nail a good recommender system and the recommender system does good things, it's, it's a great thing for everybody. It's just so hard to say what good things actually mean. Okay, so maybe not talking about jobs, but what about recommending in like political space and how that is impacting elections, democracy, things like that, if we're talking about future impact of recommendation models? So there's an open problem that everybody I think is now acutely more aware than when we were as a field six years ago, five years ago. When was the last election? But you know what I mean, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so I think now we're kind of like, there's, there's more of a spotlight on, onto this. I, I unfortunately, no idea what a good policy would be to actually solve this problem. This is a very, very complex problem. People much smarter than me should actually, should actually try and solve it, uh, which I'm not sure that defines what the people that are actually working on these laws. But, but that's, it's, it's, it is what it is. Like, it is what it is. One thing which I think is cool is that the community is more sensitive to this. Like, Mozilla AI, which is the new Mozilla initiative on, on actually trustworthy AI, as in their mission to develop tools that actually help people build trustworthy system, in particular in echo chambers, social recommendation, and so on. And that's why we organize with them the KDD event, which is co-organized with, with them, because they really feel so very strongly about this. And Reckless is a very, very tiny, and at the end of the day, completely negligible contribution to this debate, but we all need to start somewhere, and that's what we could do. Well, that's a great thing to end on, I think. We're coming up on the hour, so let's thank Jacobo again. Thank, thank you for coming in. So Jacobo Tagliabui. That's it for this episode of Ground Truth. Thanks so much for listening. 
To make sure you're updated about future episodes, give us a follow on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're interested in attending one of our live events, follow us on Twitter at It's Arthur AI. Until next time.